You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. With the GRU's exploitation of the Folina vulnerabilities, Seaflower uses stolen seed phrases to rifle cryptocurrency wallets. Ukraine moves sensitive data abroad. Anonymous claims to have hacked Russia's drone suppliers and to have hit sensitive targets in Belarus. Rick Howard reports on an NSA briefing at the RSA conference. Our guest is Ricardo Amper from Encode with a look at biometrics in sports stadiums and the effects of war on the cyber underworld. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. CERT-UA maintains its conclusion that Sandworm, a GRU operation, was responsible for exploiting Folina to compromise Ukrainian media organizations, computing reports. Compromised Word documents are carrying the async rat Trojan as a malicious payload. Folina is a remote code execution vulnerability. It's listed as CVE-2022-3190, assigned a severity rating of 7.8 out of 10 by Microsoft, and it uses the Microsoft Support Diagnostic Tool to download and execute malicious script. It's being called Low Interaction Remote Code Execution, not zero-click, because there's some interaction required for execution, but not much. All it takes is for a victim to preview a malicious file. Ars Technica notes that Microsoft has issued instructions for mitigation explaining how to disable MSDT, but hasn't yet said whether it will issue a full patch. Security Week reports that digital advertising security company Confiant has discovered a campaign sending backdoored versions of iOS and Android Web3 wallets. The attackers have cloned the legitimate sites of the wallets and have included links to download them, which contain the app's legitimate functionality but which also exfiltrates the user's seed phrase in order to steal the victim's cryptocurrency. Confiant says that the cyber criminals running this campaign have not yet been identified, but are likely Chinese, 
as much of the data found are in Chinese and contain information from Chinese and Hong Kong IP addresses. The Wall Street Journal reports that Ukraine has begun to store sensitive data abroad, backing up its information to render it less vulnerable to Russian physical or cyber attack. George Dubinsky, the country's deputy minister of digital transformation, said, To be on the safe side, we want to have our backups abroad. Among the earlier transfers was a program to back data up to a secure private cloud with servers located in Poland. Priority has been given to protecting VIP databases, that is, databases deemed essential to the operation of Ukraine's economy. Anonymous claims to have successfully hacked into Russia's drone suppliers, if not exactly the drones themselves. Tweets on behalf of the hacktivist collective include statements saying, Russian UAV drones plans and tactics hacked. We hope this information will help the war to end as soon as possible. No war is justified. Accounts of exactly what Anonymous obtained are confused and unclear, but it does not appear to have been a direct attack on the Russian military, as some sources said. Images posted of files allegedly stolen appear to include promotional literature and a list of companies involved in the production or trade of the Kronstadt Group's Orion-E armed drone, an export model. Computing notes sensibly that the nature of Anonymous makes it impossible to ascertain if the hacked data is genuine, although cybersecurity experts do think that most of the collective claims of successful attacks are true. Anonymous also claims to have engineered significant disruption of government activities in Belarus. They tweeted, Access to 26 ministries, centers, and banks of the Belarusian government has been restricted as a result of attacks by me, your Anon Spider. There are no independent reports of such activity, which have to be received with skepticism. Somebody would surely have noticed such widespread disturbances. Kayla Cybersecurity Intelligence has researched the effects Russia's war against Ukraine has been having on the cybercrime landscape, detailing new developments in the cybercriminal underground as a result of the conflict. The effects are being produced by new criminal opportunities, by the effect of Western sanctions, and by new Russian restrictions on certain online services. Kayla researchers have found, for example, that people are getting transportation out of Ukraine through hacking sites, rather than through legitimate sites and services, and there has been an increase in demand for money transfer service, as both Russia and Ukraine now have laws in place dictating limits on the amounts that can be transferred and the locations to which money may be transferred. These are the traditional services black markets have traditionally offered in wartime, and cybercriminals have not been slow to pivot from online fraud and carding to take advantage of the desperate. What's made legitimate remittances harder has also made criminal transactions more difficult. The blind eye the Russians have traditionally turned toward money laundering, for example, is now seeing a bit more clearly, and life has grown a bit more challenging for the underworld. And, of course, Western sanctions have made it difficult, in some cases difficult to the point of impossibility, for, say, ransomware victims to pay their extortionists, especially when the ransomware operators are working from Russia, as so many of them do. VPN services have also seen a spike in demand. Kayla writes, The spike can be caused by the arrival of new users hoping to acquire accounts for reliable VPN services 
especially since Russia has started to block URLs linked to some of them, while to legally pay for remaining VPNs is hard without having non-Russia-issued Visa and MasterCard credit cards. There's nothing inherently illegal about VPNs, but they're restricted in Russia, where the government has enacted censorship laws to stifle access to sites that offer what the Kremlin regards as disinformation, that is, comment and reporting, that don't reflect the official Russian line on the special military operation. Facebook and Instagram are among the platforms being censored, and the cyber underworld has been quick to offer illicit VPN services to those who want to see the news the government would rather go unreported, or at least unheard. Kayla has also found that the war is affecting both cyber criminal online communities and C2C markets for ransomware and other crimeware, The actors behind the Raccoon Stealer malware reported on a forum that their core developers are unable to continue to produce the malware because of a special operation and that work on Raccoon Stealer has been suspended. The gang hints that the suspension is due to the war. Chatter about the effects of war has also appeared on the Russophone Cybercrime Forum. There's some debate there about the nature and justification of Russia's war, despite the forum's rules against such political discussion. And of course, as we've seen, ransomware gangs have taken sides in the war, usually Russia's side. Conti is the most famous of these. Some of the gangs, wishing for freedom to pursue criminal gain, have sought to keep operations as normal as possible by declaring their neutrality. Whether that will work for them seems an open question. It's tough to continue operating when your protection has grown shaky. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
there is a natural tension between security and convenience, and one of the places where that manifests itself is at large events, stadiums, arenas, or theaters, where thousands of people need to get in and out of a facility in a way that, ideally, is both efficient and secure. Ricardo Ampere is CEO of Encode Technologies, a company that's using biometrics to keep those lines moving securely. The trick to making it right is that it has to be a combination of a number of things. First of all, it has to be secure. So we use uh, the same technology that major banks, you know, the top three digital uh, digital banks use healthcare, et cetera. So it has to be secure. And the second one that you mentioned, um, it has to be able to streamline entrances while, while making sure that uh, that is secure. And at the same time, provide a platform to further uh, use, expand the use cases, and then become a complete engagement platform for fans. You know, in preparation for our conversation today, I was thinking about some of the biometric uh, methods that we use in our daily lives. And I was thinking about, you know, something like Face ID on an iOS device where, you know, it is extraordinarily reliable. But in the off case that it doesn't work, um, you have a password to fall back on. Is it similar here where the the the, uh, the biometric authentication, the face scan allows you to get in quickly, but you still bring your ticket along just in case? Look, uh, there's different ways how this can be implemented. Uh, our favorite one is one that's great for privacy. So after mm. you prove your identity, we generate a QR code where your biometric is embedded there. It's not on the server. It's not anywhere where it can be stolen. And so when you come to this stadium, you scan the QR code. And then with a device that's offline, that's not connected to the Internet, extracts that kind of biometric data from your QR code, reads your face at, at the time of entrance, and then matches up and then deletes it. So it's incredible because uh, no one uh, no one knows that you're there. No one is using facial recognition in any creepy way. But it's actually a super private centric way to be able to streamline the entrance and you can tie your ticket, you can tie your credit card. And so once the identity is there, then there's a number of experiences that open up. Let's talk about privacy. I mean, what are the things that are in place there to ensure that people feel comfortable with it? First of all, uh, privacy is our North Star. Everything that we develop, it's developed around privacy. So what does that mean is that we always ask for consent. So we don't uh, sell or support any use cases that are surveillance or something that's not without consent. Secondly, the data is yours and you can you can extract it, delete it, transfer it as you want. Number three, the biometric is not stored as a picture. It's stored as a two kilobyte uh, string, which even if it was hacked, would have been impossible to deduce your face from it. And four, in the specific case, it's not stored in the cloud. It's just stored in your QR code that's on your phone. And so this is, these are a number of, of, of privacy measures that can allow these type of experiences, which provide a lot more security, but at the same time enhance privacy, even more that if human beings would, would, would check it. Now, what about the actual security at the facility? Say, for example, there is some sort of incident, you know, there's some, someone, uh, there's a disagreement, there's a physical altercation, something like that. 
Um, would stadium security be able to have access to this to help them do the things they need to do? Yes, uh, absolutely. So our system allows for uh, stadium personnel to be able to block people if they uh, generate some type of problem or if other people have generated in the past and, and you have kind of frames or videos from that you can fit into the system. And so when that person either tries to get their fan ID or is standing in front of the stadium, as, as the person tries to enter with his face, he will be stopped. So, so there's a number of ways how you can create these blacklists and it creates the right incentive for people to behave well. What's the reaction been so far? I mean, biometrics is, is certainly not without controversy. How's the adoption rate going for you? Yeah, there's a lot of controversy, but because there's a lot of, uh, there's a massive lack of, of knowledge and confusion. Uh, so when you, you, you talk about biometrics or facial recognition, there's two parts. The surveillance side, which is against every privacy law. It's trying, it's trying to recognize you. You don't know what's happening. You never gave consent. You don't get access to the data. And so it's creepy and it should be actually regulated and, and, eliminating most of the cases. When it comes to, to our technology, it's always with consent. Um, and so once you go into the stadium, you go with your consent that you participated on the program, that you're using your biometric to get in. And so it's a way once people get authenticated and you know they A, have the incentive to perform well, but every economic activity gets just easier and more uh, productive. That's Ricardo Ampere from Encode Technologies. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me here is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer, also our chief analyst. Uh, Rick, you and I and several other members of our CyberWire team were in full force last week at the RSA 22 conference. And as part of that, uh, you were invited to attend a press conference that was put on by the NSA. Uh, Who was there? Yeah, it was uh, late in the afternoon on my last day of the conference, and we were tucked away on the third floor of the Moscone Center. I mean, there was nobody up there at that point. (laughs) (laughs) There was a long table down the middle of the room with me and three other journalists on one side and the NSA contingent on the other. Rob Joyce was there. He's the director of cybersecurity strategy and oversees the NSA's cybersecurity directorate. And their mission is to prevent and eradicate cyber threats to the Department of Defense, national security systems, and the Defense Industrial Base, or 
the dib, as the cool kids call it. Uh, right. They had uh, Natalie Pittori was there. She's the chief of the NSA's Enduring Security Framework, essentially the intelligence sharing function between the NSA and the feds, plus the dib. And Christina Walter, she's the chief of defense for the dib. And so you're saying dib here. What exactly is dib? Well, as you can imagine, the federal government uses a lot of commercial contractors. And according to the CISA website, more than 100,000 defense industrial-based companies and their subcontractors. And many of these companies run material systems for the government, both on the unclassified and classified networks. And so these companies make up the DIB. And the, the DIB has its own ISAC, their Information Sharing and Analysis Center, right? Yeah, it's called the National Defense ISAC, and it's part of the NSA's job is for, uh, to share intelligence, provide security and intelligence products with the DIB community. Now, for example, according to Natalie Pittori, besides intelligence on the latest threats, the NSA's enduring security framework uh, provides white papers to the DIB and to the public, by the way, on thorny security topics like security guidance for 5G cloud infrastructure in terms of integrity, data protection, network isolation, lateral movement detection, and just general purpose threats to 5G in general. And then Morgan Adamski, uh, she's the chief of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. She talked about the NSA offering of protective domain name system services that is um, injected with NSA's unique threat intel. And this is a free surface to all the DIB companies. So those are the kinds of things those folks provide to those groups. Well, looking at the uh, intelligence sharing side of things, how are they doing there? Well, uh, the DIB intelligence sharing program has been around for a long time. And I asked Rob to give us an update on the current status and future direction. My takeaway from that exchange was that the National Defense ISAC is in the same boat as many of the other ISACs and ISALs in existence out there. They're all pretty good at sharing IOCs with each other, indicators of compromise. Probably not as good at sharing intrusion kill chain tactics, techniques, and procedures for known adversary campaigns, you know, along the lines of the MITRE attack framework. And they're all struggling with automating the process. Remember, hmm. uh, the DIB companies range in size from giant Silicon Valley security vendors like Cisco to mom-and-pop startups who provide key services as a subcontractor to the larger prime. So establishing a level playing field of resources, it's a really tough problem. But they've made huge strides since their founding and may have made progress every day. And the protected DNS service is a great example of that. Uh, they have other security services like that on the table discussing about those kinds of things for future deployment. How interesting is it to you that... Uh that you were invited to this at all. I mean, this sort of <laughs> outreach, I'm not speaking you personally, I'm just saying Yeah, this why type the hell were you there, Rick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't they know who you are? I mean, or aren't? Um, uh, but this sort of outreach is, is a bit of a, a pivot for some of these agencies, right? Well, I mean, for this, you know, the, the, the government, the federal government's been talking about the private-public uh, collaboration, okay, for years. And uh, this mm -hmm. effort at the uh, RSA conference is one way they can get the information out to show people that they are contributing to this effort. And, you know, when we started doing this way back in the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of sharing going on between the commercial sector and the government. And like I said before, we've made huge strides in that area. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for uh, keeping us up to date here. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us.
And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.